You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. You are a holy God, infinite, eternal and unchangeable. By your Spirit, help us to live in gratitude and reflect your glorious grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for whose sake we pray. Amen. Well, friends, isn't it the case that in all of our significant relationships, we all long for clarity? Uh, Just think about your key relationships in life. Uh, It could be with your husband or your wife, your boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend or closest friends. doesn't matter what relationship it is, but don't we all long for the clarity and certainty of commitment? My gosh, if you've ever been in one, you'll know that there's nothing more awkward than being in a one-sided relationship. And there's also nothing more unsettling than being in a relationship that can collapse at any moment. Just think about marriage for a moment, surely. Surely one of the great benefits about marriage is the certainty that no matter how badly I fail my spouse, he will be there. She will be there. Now that's not something to take advantage of, but they've promised, contracted, they've covenanted to be with me to the very end, no matter what. Friends, let me ask, how terrifying would it be to have an unclear, uncertain and uncommitted relationship with God. How unsettling would it be to think that if I so much as cross the line of sin, God will kick me to the curb and kick me out of his kingdom. I mean, God might have saved me out of sin, but what secures my salvation? How can I know that my sin won't separate me from God yet again? What guarantees that clear, certain and committed relationship with God? So far in the story of God, Yahweh has saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt. In one sense, he's fulfilled one third of his promise to Abraham. And today he's going to fulfill the next third of that promise. He will forge a covenant with Israel. We might understand a covenant a bit like a relationship agreement, a relationship sealed by promise. And in this covenant, God will seal that relationship. He will confirm his kingship. Israel will be his people and he will be their king. Act 5, Covenant. And this covenant with God is similar to any other written contract in one sense. And if you've read a written contract before, you'll know that every contract has a few key sections. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the purpose, preparation, parties, preamble, and provisions of this covenant. And we'll finish up by looking at two implications for God's covenant with us. How does that sound? Sound good? Don't worry, I promise we'll be out by dinner. Point number one, the purpose of the covenant. It's been three months. Three months since Yahweh saved Israel out of Egypt. And now Israel stands at the foot of Mount Sinai. God summons Moses, their leader, up to the top of the mountain. And there, God sets out the purpose of his covenant with Israel. He is forging this covenant 
so that Israel will live with Yahweh as their king. But I want you to notice how he begins. He begins by reminding Moses of his love for Israel. Just imagine a fledgling eagle struggling to fly. As its wings falter and it begins to fall, its mother comes up beneath it and lifts it up on the back of her wings. That's the picture of God's tender love for Israel in verse 4. God heard their cry. He remembered his promise and he rescued his people. Yahweh carried Israel out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Remember how Gandalf sends eagles to rescue Frodo from Mount Doom. They bring him out of danger and into the safety of Gondor. Friends, that's what Yahweh has done for Israel. He didn't just redeem them out of slavery. No, he redeemed them into his kingdom. And it's against the backdrop of that redemption. It's against the backdrop of that love that Yahweh seals his relationship with Israel. It's as if he's saying to his people, I purchased you with a purpose. I redeemed you for a reason. Don't have such a small view of your salvation. Don't just say to one another, at least we're not in Egypt, or at least we're not going to hell. No, I saved you for so much more than that. I saved you to be so much more than that. And verse 5 shows us what he's saved them to be. God's own possession. His kingdom of priests. His holy nation. You see, friends, the purpose of this covenant is for Israel to live with Yahweh as their king. Priests, they were called to represent God to his people. And in this covenant, God wants Israel to be a kingdom of priests. He wants them to represent him to his world. There's a sense in which they are to be everything that Adam failed to be. Adam failed to represent God, the author of this world. Adam failed to be a mirror of his glory. And now, God calls Israel to do what Adam failed to do, to be that new humanity. He calls them to be a holy nation, a people who are set apart and distinct from this world. Israel is not just to speak its lines, but play its part. God wants them to be the model of his master plan for a whole new world. And in this covenant, in this relationship sealed by promise, God wants us to speak and live in such a way that we shine the light of his glory. He wants every tribe to stop and stare at the holiness of his people that reflects the holiness of our God. And the laws of this covenant will show Israel how to be that holy nation, how to represent our holy king. Part two, preparation for the covenant. Well, if you've been to one of our many church weddings, you'll have heard me say these words before. Marriage should be honoured by all and is not to be entered into lightly or carelessly but with reverent and serious respect for those purposes for which it was instituted by God. Marriage is a serious thing. You don't just take a swing. You don't just get married in vain hope that things might work out. No, marriage as a covenant takes preparation. Imagine then how much more preparation is needed for a covenant between a holy God and an unholy people. 
Do you see, this covenant, it's not a marriage of equals. You know, sometimes you see a couple and you think to yourself, that guy is really punching above his weight. But punching above your weight doesn't even begin to describe the chasm between Yahweh and Israel. Uh, Question four of the Shorter Catechism asks this simple but profound question. What is God? And I want you to hear its answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. Do you see, friends, God is perfection personified. And Israel? Well, Israel is nothing more than an unholy, sinful and insignificant people. In many ways, we are just like Israel, aren't we? And this covenant is not a marriage of equals. And that means that Israel must prepare to enter it. In verse 10, Israel must wash its clothes as a sign of cleansing. In verse 12, they must set up boundaries to stay away from the mountain of God. You see, Israel is so unholy that if they just touch that holy mountain, they will surely die. And in verse 15, Israel must abstain from sexual relations. Now, it's not because sex is unclean. Far from it. God created sex to be regularly and enjoyed within marriage. But for now, Israel must abstain in preparation to meet their God. In the same way that Paul commends the goodness of singleness, Israel must give God their undivided devotion. You see, if Israel is going to live with Yahweh as their holy king, then they need to be his holy people. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Friends, you know, once you've been saved by this holy God, once you've met and encountered this holy God, you cannot live as you once lived. Israel was saved out of slavery to Egypt, so why in the world would they ever want to go back? And you and I, we've been saved out of slavery to sin. So why in the world would we ever want to go back? No, friends, we've been saved into a relationship with a holy God. So you and I must live as a holy nation. There is no place for ongoing, unrepentant sin in the life of someone who worships Jesus as king. Part three. Parties to the covenant. It's the third day. And finally, God comes to meet his people. In verses 16 to 25, we see in surround sound and high definition the chasm between these two parties. You see, Israel isn't just punching above its weight. No, God is in a different league altogether. He descends on Mount Sinai as king of the world. Thunder, lightning and clouds all welcome their creator king. And as he arrives, the earth shakes and smoke covers the mountain. Friends, the God of the Bible is not someone we can approach casually. God is not our homeboy. He is not our best mate. He is the righteous king of holy love before whom the mountains bow and the seas roar. He is terrifying in his holiness, overwhelming in his glory. God is perfection personified. God is not just some guy on Coffee Meets Bagel. You can't just swipe right to start a relationship with him. 
No, he is so pure in his perfection that if we come to him stained by even a spot of sin, he will wipe us out. And rightly so. That's what we see in verses 20 to 24, isn't it? If Israel breaks through the barriers to come up to God, God will break out in holy anger against Israel. The holy and the unholy cannot mix. It's funny, isn't it? We uh, often hear about our Christian brothers and sisters speak of wanting a breakthrough. But according to Exodus 19, a breakthrough is the last thing you want. Because a breakthrough to God leads to a break out of wrath. You see, friends, this covenant is not a marriage of equals. And that leaves us with one burning question, doesn't it? If God is that holy and we are that unholy, how in the world can we have this relationship? How in the world can a holy God live with an unholy people without wiping them out? And the answer to that question is found in one word covenant, a relationship sealed by promise. You know, when you stop and think about it, it's a beautiful reality, isn't it? That a God so holy would so long for a relationship with a people so sinful that he would provide a means of relationship. He would seal that relationship. He would forge a covenant. And in this covenant, God gives Israel a mediator. A mediator. Did you notice that Moses is constantly running up and down the mountain between Yahweh and Israel? In verse 3, he goes up. In verse 7, he comes down. In verse 8, he goes up. Verse 14, he comes down. Verse 20, he goes up. Verse 25, he comes down. You'd think that after all that running, Moses would just be a little lightheaded from all the motion sickness. For some of you right now who are in the process of looking for your first home, you might be familiar with a buyer's agent. And that's a bit like what Moses is here. When you're too afraid to go yourself and bid for your property at the auction, you engage a buyer's agent, someone who stands in your place, who speaks on your behalf. Well, unholy Israel is too afraid to approach a holy God on its own terms. Israel needs an agent. Israel needs a mediator. Someone to stand for them and before God. So many of us approach God far too casually, don't we? We forget the heights of God's holiness and the depths of our depravity. And so, we forget the lengths to which God has gone to forge a relationship with us. Fourthly, preamble to the covenant. Finally, we arrive at the document itself. And we, in one sense, turn to its first page and read its first words right there in chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke. Oh, we're all too familiar with this phrase by now, aren't we? And God said. Once again, God works through his word. The word which created this world in love, cursed this world in judgment, promised a new world in hope and redeemed the people in power, now confirms a covenant in grace. You know, lawyers often draft a document called a deed of release. And a deed of release settles the terms of two parties who are breaking their relationship. 
And at the top of every deed is a preamble, a short section explaining the breaking of that relationship. And that preamble frames all the terms and conditions that follow. All the obligations about confidentiality, settlement monies, non-disparagement clauses, non-compete restraints, they're all interpreted in light of that preamble. Well, unlike a deed which breaks a relationship, this covenant will make a relationship. And its preamble opens with these words. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You see, all the terms and conditions of this covenant, all the laws that we now find out set out in Exodus and Leviticus, sit within a relationship of grace. They sit within a relationship of God's redeeming love. God has already redeemed Israel. He's already saved them by grace. He's already made them his people. And now, In this relationship of grace, this covenant will show Israel how to live with God as their king. How to live in that relationship of redeeming love. And so, part five, provisions of the covenant. In the next 14 verses, we find the Ten Commandments. But it's actually better for us to see these as the ten words. Our ten principles which sum up the entire law. Uh, We're reading a contract on our computers. This is a bit like that table of contents under the preamble. And each of the 10 items is hyperlinked to a different section of the contract. Just double click on one and a section of Exodus or Leviticus will open before you. Now, we're not going to look at these 10 words today, but for now, I want us to realize that we can divide them into two key parts. The first four words are all about living with God as our king. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the next six words are all about living under God as our king. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see, friends, when we live with God as our king, absolutely every part of our life changes. Israel can't just say, I'll obey the first four words and you'll be king of my heart. But I'll ignore the next six words and I'll be king of my life. No, when we live with God as our king, it demands a total, entire, holistic change. A total change in our ambitions, our dreams and our relationships. You see, when we come into covenant with this holy God, we become a holy nation who know, love and live for Jesus. God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And now he forges a covenant with them so that they will be his people. And he will be their king. But why does any of this matter? Covenants, laws, mediators and holiness. I mean, it all sounds so foreign. I mean, isn't all of this what Jesus came to change? Isn't the gospel the good news that none of this applies to us anymore? Why should I care about God's covenant with Israel when I've got my relationship with Jesus? Well, brother, sister, this covenant is the paradigm of your relationship. And if you ignore this covenant with Israel, you will impoverish your relationship with Jesus. In closing, I want us to reflect on two implications of this covenant for our relationship with God today.
Firstly, grace precedes the law. The single greatest misunderstanding about Christianity is that we need to be good enough to be accepted by God. I remember not long ago speaking with a nominal Christian friend, someone who identifies as a Christian on the outside, but really doesn't love Jesus on the inside. He said to me, Adam, I just don't want to believe in a God who demands that I live a good enough life to get into heaven. I looked at him and said, mate, neither do I. And if that's what the gospel is, then I don't want to be a Christian. But if God only accepts me if I'm good enough, then firstly, he'd never accept me. But secondly, I'd be living every moment of my life in fear. Because even if I could be good enough just once to be accepted, how in the world can I sustain that? I'd be terrified that if I crossed the line of sin by even just an inch, God would kick me to the curb and kick me out of his kingdom. Now, my relationship with God would have no clarity, no certainty, and no commitment. I would have no confidence. But that's not what we see in this covenant, is it? In this covenant, grace precedes the law. God first saved Israel by grace and grace alone, and only then did he give them his law and covenant. No, the preamble frames the terms. We don't obey God in order to be accepted by him. No, we obey God because we've already been accepted by him. But even as Christians, we don't so easily get this, do we? Even we who have been saved by grace, experienced grace, tasted of grace, still default to living by works. You know, I'm convinced that there's some part of us all which doesn't quite believe that grace is true. How easily do we obey God, but it's all duty and no delight. All guilt and no grace. How often do we obey God not out of faith, but fear? Fear that if we cross the line of sin, he'll kick us to the curb and out of his kingdom. No, friends, if grace is what we've received, then gratitude is how we must respond. Gratitude for the gift of his son who lived and died for us, who saved us into his kingdom. Gratitude for the gift of his spirit who lives and dwells in us, who secures us in his kingdom. Let's obey God out of gratitude for keeping his promises to us in Jesus. Let's obey him out of gratitude for forgiving our sins, past, present, and future. Let's enjoy the freedom of gospel grace and gospel gratitude. That's what it looks like to be God's kingdom of priests and holy nation. You see, when we respond to gospel grace with gospel gratitude, we shine the light of God's glory to the nations. The gospel expresses God's grace. God's grace magnifies his glory. And our gratitude displays the glory of his grace in the gospel. When people look at our lives, what do they see? Do they see people who live out of gratitude at the grace of God in the gospel? How many times do we tell our non-Christian friends, I have to, 
I have to go to church. I have to marry a believer. I have to live a holy life. I don't know about you, but I have to doesn't really sound like gratitude, does it? Our friends, may we change our I have to's into I love to's. Because grace precedes the law. And if grace is what we've received, then gratitude is how we must respond. Secondly and lastly, the law leads to life. The law leads to life. You might incline in the other direction. You might be tempted to think that grace makes obedience totally redundant. I mean, if God is going to forgive me anyway, why bother obeying him at all? If Jesus is my saviour, why do I need to live with him as my king? But that would be like a husband cheating on his wife because he knows that she'll never leave him. It's tragic. He doesn't realise that honouring his wife is the very means of enjoying his marriage. He doesn't realise that the laws of marriage lead to life and love in marriage. And we need to realise that the laws of God lead to life with God. Jesus has not freed us from obedience. No, he's freed us for obedience. He's freed us to live as we were always meant to live. He's freed us to live with him as our king. And that demands a radical reformation of every part of our lives. In what we believe, in what we feel, and in how we live. Guys, don't have such a small view of the gospel. Don't just say to each other, well, at least we're not going to hell. No, that's just like the husband who says, at least she won't leave me. No, God has saved you in Jesus for so much more than that. He saved you in Jesus to be so much more than that. We need to get it into our hearts that obeying God's word won't kill our joy. It'll grow our joy. It'll maximize our joy because God's words bring life. You see, if Israel obeyed the law, they would live with Yahweh as their king forever and enjoy the fullness of his every blessing. And if we obey God's word, we will live with Jesus as our king forever and enjoy the fullness of his gospel blessings. We cannot accept Jesus as our saviour without worshipping him as our king. If anything, Jesus became our saviour so that he might be our king. God is a righteous king of holy love. And that demands that you and I live righteous lives of holy love. And when we do, we will live as we were always meant to live. As God's people, living in God's kingdom, with God as our king. We will be a holy nation under a holy God. Act 5. Covenant. Let's pray. You are a holy God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. By your Spirit, help us to live in gratitude and reflect your glorious grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for whose sake we pray. Amen.